The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of John, and we are currently in the seventh chapter. We just started the seventh chapter last week, but before we continue on, let me review a little bit what we've seen in the previous two chapters. Now, this is kind of a quiz, because I I asked these questions last week and got blank stares. So I'm going to try it again and and see if we can do any better. And if we don't do better, then we'll try it again next week, and we'll just keep trying. Okay? One of the keys of teaching is repetition. Okay? You keep repeating it, but the thing is, you've got to say it in a different way so they don't know you're repeating it, you know, so they'll catch on, all right? John chapter 5 is one of the greatest chapters in the Word of God on what? The deity of Christ, all right? In chapter 5, we saw Yeshua heal a lame man, and he did it on the Sabbath, and he did it purposely on the Sabbath. And then they accused him of breaking the Sabbath. And he says, my father works on the Sabbath, and so do I. And they said, you're making yourself equal with God. And he didn't say, oh, no, you got me wrong. You misunderstood me. He took the whole rest of the chapter and went on a preaching spree saying, I am equal to God in every way there is. It's an absolute great chapter on the deity of Christ. You got anybody who's questioning that, just go to John chapter 5 and study that chapter out. All right, John chapter 6 is one of the greatest chapters in the Word of God on the sovereignty of God in salvation. You know, this is such an interesting chapter because over and over, Yeshua's dealing with this unsaved crowd, and over and over, you know, they're not getting it, and He keeps telling them, well, you can't get it. Unless you've been given by the Father, you're not going to get it. Unless the Father draws you, you're not going to get it. Unless you're chosen, you're not going to get it. They'll never come to understand His words unless God has drawn them. Two very important chapters that deal primarily with these subjects. Now last week we looked at the first 13 verses of of chapter 7, which open with the Jews seeking to kill Yeshua. Now the geographical location... And the opening of chapter 7 hasn't changed. All right, he's still in Galilee. He's been in Galilee for about a year ministering. But these first 13 verses are kind of a transition because they're describing discussion about him leaving and him actually leaving Galilee and heading to Jerusalem. And so we saw him last week. He left. He went to Jerusalem. Now, the events of chapter 7 take place in the context of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Shavuot, and because of the feast, Jerusalem is crowded. This is probably one of the biggest attended feasts that they had. There's people from all over Judea, from all over Galilee, and there's just this celebratory atmosphere there in the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the most joyous of all their feasts. And there's a lot of speculation going on at this crowds about Yeshua. And the crowd is divided about his possible identity. Some say he's a good man, which he really can't be a good man if he's saying he's God. If he's not God, then he's really not a good man because he's saying he's God, and good men don't say they're God, all right? Some saying he's a deceiver, and so the crowd can't make up their mind. Well, in verse 14, he says, But when it was now the midst of the feast, Yeshua went up to the temple and began to teach. Now, you remember what happened last week? His brothers are saying, hey, go to the feast, show yourself, you know, do some tricks, do some stuff at the feast, and everybody will flock to you. And he goes, I'm not going down to that feast. And then later he went, but he went on his own timetable, all right? He says, when it was now the midst of the feast. This is most likely the third or fourth day of the feast. This this festival lasted seven days with a sacred assembly on the eighth day. So remember, he didn't go to the feast when everybody else did. He waited until the middle of the week. Because he knew the rulers there wanted to kill him. We saw this last week in verse 11. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? See, they were expecting him to be there. So he waited. The caravan got there from Galilee. He's not there. So maybe they're kind of, okay, he's not coming. We can relax a little bit, you know. And then he just pops up in the midst of the feast and there he is. 
So here he is. All of a sudden, he comes to the feast, and now he's teaching publicly. He steps up and begins to teach. And some think that because of the controversy about the miracle of the Sabbath that's recorded in verses 21 through 24 that we're going to look at, they think that maybe he arrived at the feast on the Sabbath. Because that's where all this controversy started, from him healing on the Sabbath. And that's possible, but we really can't be certain what day you know, he shows up and starts doing this. It says, Yeshua went up to the temple. <clears throat> now the impression we get is that of a sudden and surprising appearance. All of a sudden, he's there in the temple area and he's teaching. He'd come at the beginning, but now he's there. Now, and I think Lazarus, because he's always putting these little innuendos you know, below the surface, he may have been trying to create the impression Maybe in the mind of the readers of Malachi 3.1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. All of a sudden he's there, and he's teaching. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. Now some strands of the Jewish messianic expectation believe that Messiah was going to come suddenly. He was going to show up out of the blue, so to speak. So Lazarus' description of Yeshua's sudden appearance would raise the question of his identity as Messiah. And I think that's what Lazarus is trying to show. You know, he suddenly appears in the temple and they're thinking, oh, Malachi, this could be the Messiah. Now, the Greek word used here for temple is hero, and it indicates that there were, this is referring to the outer court area of the temple. You know, we tend to think of the temple as a single building, but it was much more than that. It was this huge complex that picture's small, so you probably can't see it that good, but, I mean, this was a huge complex. You had the Holy of Holies at the center, okay, where the high priest only went once a year. Next to that was the sanctuary that was just limited to the priest. Then you had the court of Israel, where the men of Israel could gather. Following that was the court of the women, was limited to the Jewish women. And, by the way, they had signs on here for Gentiles, because the outer court there, that huge area, which is the size of about three football fields, is all the court of the Gentiles. And there's signs that archaeology has found on the walls warning Gentiles if they cross this barrier, death would occur. There was temple police, they were armed with swords, and they would kill you. You Gentiles were not allowed past that barrier. So wouldn't that be great to go worship the Lord and say, I'm allowed to worship in this part, but if I go on this part... (laughs) I'm a dead man, all right? But this court of the Gentiles was meant to be a sacred space where Gentiles from all nations could come and worship Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, and be taught and learn and have an experience with Yahweh. Now, remember what we saw in chapter 2. The temple tabernacle was a type. What's the antitype? Yeshua is the anti-type of the temple. Remember, he said, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. And they're like, what? You can't do that. And he says, the scripture tells us he was speaking of his body. Yeshua is the anti-type of the temple. The temple represented the presence of God among his people. And so Yeshua came and he pitched his tent. He tabernacled among us. So here we have Yeshua, the true temple, standing in the midst of the temple, He is the true presence of God coming in the midst of this temple. And it says he began to teach. Now, this is not unusual, okay? Rabbis would come to the temple area, and they go to the temple courtyard, this massive area, and they'd find a location in the courtyard, and they'd start teaching. And a group would gather around him. So Yeshua finds a place in the courtyard, and he begins to teach. What do you think he was teaching? It's really not a trick question. In in the Jewish culture of Yeshua's day, the function of the teacher was to teach the law of Moses. All right? In fact, in Yeshua's time, there was no other curriculum taught. All right? Isn't that a strange idea? You know, a person of God would be teaching the Word of God. All right? I know that's a little strange today, but back then it wasn't. That's what they focused on, the Word of God. An elementary school, so to speak, for them consisted of teaching young boys up to the age of 12, to memorize the Torah. That's all they did. That's all they did for school. Okay? Here's the book. Memorize it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Most Christians can't even read those books. 
let alone memorize everything in them. By the time they were 12, most kids would have the Torah memorized. All right? And then they would graduate. If they, you know, were proficient in this memorization and, un- and you know, memorizing the Word of God, then they would graduate uh, into a, a class where they would learn the traditions of the Jews. All right? They would move on, basically, they, to the oral teachings and start memorizing that and start learning how to, you know, interpret and understand the law. So when Yeshua began teaching in the temple, He was giving interpretation on the Tanakh. He's saying, here's what the Bible says, here's what it means. This is what He's doing. It says, the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? Now, remember we were looking at this topic of the Jews, and Lazarus predominantly uses the term Jews to refer to the Jewish leaders. Not everybody. This could be a case where he could broaden it. There are some times when he uses Jews, and he means more than just the leaders. Is this just the leaders here? Could be. Could be broader than that. Everybody could be astonished that's hearing him. And notice that response. They are astonished. This is from the Greek word thumadzo, which characteristically used when object of, of perception are extremely unusual. You're seeing something and you're just like, this is different. This is, I just can't, I can't explain this. For instance, this word is used of the disciples when Yeshua calmed the storm in Matthew 8, 26. He said to them, why are you afraid? Well, they think they're going to die. That's why they're afraid. Okay, the storm is bad. They're in the boat. Boat's taking on water. He says, you men of little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea. And it became perfectly calm. Can you even fathom that? I mean, you're on a boat, you're afraid for your life, and Yeshua gets up and he rebukes them. And all of a sudden, the sea's like glass. I, you know, it gives me chills just thinking about it. And he says, the men were thumadzo. They're amazed, they're marveling, and they said, what kind of a man is this? Well, this is a God man, guys that even the winds and the sea obey Him. They saw the power of God right before their eyes, and they are amazed. We also see this word used in Acts 4.13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Yeshua. The wisdom of Peter and John caused the Sanhedrin to marvel. They're like scratching their heads saying, this is unusual. They're impressed. They're used to men cringing before them, not speaking out boldly, and they're not used to having the Scriptures quoted at them. And these Jewish rulers were at a loss to understand this. How could these uneducated common men pose such confidence? The conclusion was, which is really remarkable, Uh, they've been with Yeshua. See, Yeshua spoke and they marveled. The disciples speak and they marvel. They don't get this. They're not used to this. There's power in these words. So the Jewish leaders are astonished at His teaching and the teaching of the disciples. Now these Jews who want to kill Him are here really unwittingly praising Him. They're marveling like, wow, this guy, how does he do this? He has not been educated by them, is what they're saying. How can he have such an understanding of the Scriptures? See, they don't get it. See, they're the the experts. He's just some uneducated Galilean. How does he know this stuff? Well, the use of the phrase, this man here, has a connotation of disrespect. Okay? It's, you know, this man, this, this Galilean. How does he do that? Look at John 18, 17. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. No, not me. Don't even know him, all right? So they marveled that this man has no education and he can teach the way that he does. Now, the term here, become learned, is from the Greek grammata, which literally means no letters. How can this man know letters? 
having never been learned. Grammata refers simply to writings and usually refers to the Scripture when it's used in the Bible. It's used this way in uh, chapter 5, where it says, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, grammata, if you don't believe the writings of Moses, how will you believe my words? So Moses' writings were the Scriptures. So when they ask, how does this man know letters? They're asking, how does he know the Scriptures when he has not sat at the feet of the rabbis? How does he know this? If we put this in the modern vernacular, we would say, how is this guy able to understand the truth of God so well when he doesn't have a degree from our accredited institution? How does he know that? You know, what degree, where did he get his degree from? He didn't have one, so how could he know this stuff? See, the Jews had the idea that teaching came only from two sources. It can either come from their schools, so they would ask, what rabbi did he study under? Or it comes from oneself. But there was another alternative. Yeshua said, my teaching comes from God. All right? He says, Yeshua answered them and said to them, my teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. Now, since rabbis often sent a student with power of attorney, so to speak, Yeshua's reply makes perfect sense in a Jewish context. See, in order to give authority to what they said, they would quote other respected rabbis. This validated what they had to say. There was really two types of rabbis at this time. All right, You had the Torah teachers, and Torah teachers were not allowed to come up with new teaching. I would never make it as a Torah teacher. Okay, You had to follow the traditions that were there. You couldn't come out with anything that hadn't been spoken, and you had to validate it by saying, Rabbi so-and-so says. All right. Then there was what they called rabbis with shmika. There was only a handful They had authority. They could present new teaching. Yeshua was a rabbi with authority. And often they ask him, where did you get your authority? They're asking him that because you're presenting new stuff. How do you do do this? Where did you get your authority? So Yeshua was a little different. They didn't understand it. He didn't quote other rabbis, but he did quote his father. What he is saying is, I have not made up my teaching. It's the teaching of my father And he made this claim over and over and over. Look at John 5, 19. Yeshua answered answered, and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. In other words, everything I do is coming from the Father. Look at verse 30 of chapter 5. I can do nothing on my own initiative. Not coming up with anything new. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He claims that everything he says and does comes from the Father. Now, here's the thing here. There's been a lot of teachers, a lot of charlatans, so to speak, down through the centuries, who have said that they're just saying what God told them to say. They got those people today, right? God said... Well, so how do you know who you listen to and who you don't listen to? Well, it's simple today, right? How do we know? Well, if they don't speak according to this book, then guess what? Forget about it. You know, if it's in here, then you don't need them, all right? Well, I got something new. No, you don't have anything new. This is, this is, the, this is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, all right? And we don't have anything new. If there's people coming up with new stuff, we're in trouble. We got to find every new thing and add addendums and, you know, to the Bible, and that, that would be very troubling, all right? So how do we know? I mean, how do we know that Yeshua's claim to be of God is true? Well, what did Nicodemus say about him? Nicodemus said, this man came to Yeshua by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a team. We know you're from God. How do they know that? He says, nobody can do the signs you do unless God is with them. See, the miracles were proof of his claims. And the people he is talking to had seen him heal a lame man. A man was lame for 38 years, sitting by that pool, and Yeshua goes over and says, get up, and he gets up. Take your your bed and go home. So this is how they know he is from God. He's teaching them what the Father wants him to. 
He says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak for myself. So he's, all right, he says in verse 16, my teaching is not mine. How do you know? How do you know if, my, if what I'm teaching is true? Well, verse 17 says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he'll know. Well, what's he saying here? How will a man know if Yeshua's teaching is from God or from himself? Well, if he's willing to do his will, he'll know. If here is a third-class condition in the Greek, maybe he will, maybe he won't. If he's willing, he'll know. If he's not, he won't. Now, the King James puts it this way. If any man will do his will. And, boy, I don't like that, because it almost sounds as if, if a man goes out and do, does God's will, then after he did God's will, God would show him the doctrine that it was true. And many see this is what he's saying here. For example, John MacArthur writes, What draws people to the gospel? What draws people to Christ is a desire to do the will of God. What do you think of that? So people are out there and all of a sudden, i got a burning desire to do the will of God. And so that's drawing me to him. Well, we just read in the chapter previously, God draws people to himself, not their desire. He says, you come to know the truth when God reveals the truth to you. I agree with that. And he reveals it to you only when you seek to do his will. No man seeks after God, the Bible tells us, all right? So he doesn't reveal to seekers. So this is, you know, you're basically initiating it is what he's trying to say. He says, you turn and then it becomes known to you. Repentance comes first. Does not God grant light on his truth? God does not grant light on his truth unless a man is anxious to walk according to the light. I never wanted to walk according to the light. Unsaved man doesn't care about God. He doesn't give a rip about God. He's doing his own thing. He wished God didn't exist. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said this, it's difficult for us to believe because it's difficult for us to obey. So in other words, you've got to obey so you can believe. A commentator commenting on Kierkegaard's remark said this, if you're willing to obey, God will show you that Jesus is God's true and righteous one. He is worthy of all your trust. So we start out by obeying. Hmm. You know, it's difficult, I think, for unsaved men to obey God, right? I mean, God says, do this. No, it's difficult for saved men to obey God, okay? How about unsaved? Can an unsaved man be willing to obey God? No. So they seem to be saying, if a man goes out and does God's will, then after having done his will, he will come to know the truth. In other words, because you're obeying me, I'm going to give you the truth. Now, that is not what our Lord is saying. He's not saying that that you must do some ethical work, and having done some ethical work, then God will introduce him into the knowledge of the truth. No, that's not what it means at all. I like the way the ESV puts it. It says, if if anyone's will is to do God's will. Now listen, the stress here is on a person's will. If your will is to do God's will, then you'll know that Yeshua's teaching is from Yahweh. Well, okay, who wills to do God's will? See, if you've been paying attention to the study, you know that it's impossible for anyone to do God's will apart from God previously doing a work in their life by the power of the Holy Spirit. God must take the initiative in salvation. God makes men willing by a sovereign act of grace. So if anyone's will is to do God's will, it is to do God's will because God gave him light. God gave him the new birth. So if anyone has received the new birth, then he'll know the teaching. See, that's what, again, he's reiterating what he said in last chapter. You don't get it because you don't know me. You're not called. You're not chosen. You haven't been drawn. Same thing. If anyone is willing to do his will, he'll know. Well, the only way you'll be willing to do his will is if he made you willing to do his will by a sovereign act. Professor C.K. Barrett, in an inclusive comment, said this. He said, a free human decision about the claims of Jesus is impossible. Why is that true? Again, we just studied this in chapter 6. All right, the greatest chapter in the Word of God on the sovereignty of God and salvation. 
No man, he says, can come to me. That, that, nobody can come unless the Father who has sent me draw him. If God draws, you come. Unless the Father has given him, you, you just can't come. You just don't get it. You're not going to understand. They must be drawn. One must be given by the Father. How is it possible then for someone to do his will? Well, because God has worked in his will. He's given them new life, and now they will to do his will. And then they know the truth. The only condition for understanding the claims of Yeshua's faith. Doing the will of God does not mean ethical obedience. I think that, you know, I think the only way you get this is if you jump in chapter 7 and start picking up there. But guess what? That's not where the gospel starts. It starts in chapter 1. you got to have a little background, okay? And that's why it's so important to keep the word of God in context. You know, we like pulling out our favorite verses here and there. It's amazing when you take your favorite verse and put verses around it. It kind of changes the meaning sometimes, you know? So you've got to have context. And the context here is the sovereignty of God. And if someone is willing to do his will... That means God has done something in their life. And that person is going to know that Yeshua is telling the truth. And that's what our Lord means here. He's talking about a work of faith that somehow was produced in men by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just add here. If anyone is willing to do his will, he'll know. I think, it's my opinion, that a believer can learn more, can grow more in the Scriptures, in knowledge of the Scriptures, by living an obedient life. I think if it's your desire to obey the Lord, to follow the Lord, as you study and read the Scriptures, it opens up more and more to you. I think if you, you're a Christian and you're reading the Bible, but you're living in sin and you know you're in sin, but you're reading the Bible, you're not going to get a whole lot. You've got to deal with that. You've got to deal with it. So I think that you know the more we desire to walk with Him in fellowship, I think He opens illumination as the Holy Spirit's job to you know, illumine our hearts of the truth of the Word of God. But that's for a saved person. This is talking to unsaved people. And unsaved people are lost. They are dead. They're blind. They're in darkness. And they need a work of God. So if anyone's willing, it's because God's made them willing. Okay? Just keep the whole... Con- chat. All you have to do is attach chapter 6 to 7. And you'll get a different perspective on it. Okay? Verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. You get that, right? That makes sense. You're talking about yourself, oh, yeah, bragging on yourself. You're, spe- you're trying to give yourself glory. He says, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he's true. And there's no unrighteousness in him. You know, this is, this is really cool. because This is a pointed attack at the Jewish rabbis. That's what, this is a slam in their face. Because they saw their ministry as an opportunity to build their own fame. And I think Yeshua, he's just kind of returning to a theme he already brought up in John chapter 5. Speaking to the Jewish leaders, he says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? You guys are so busy patting yourselves on the, each other's back, you know, you're receiving glory. You do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. The truth that they love to receive glory, I think, is demonstrated in Matthew 23. It says, they love the places of honor at banquets, and the chief seats in the synagogue, and the respectful greetings at the marketplace, and being called rabbi by me. They like all this special stuff they get. I'm spiritual, you know, give me all the benefits and perks of being spiritual. Paul taught that a true Jew was one who was circumcised in heart, whose praise is not from men, but from God, Romans chapter 2, 29. But they wanted the praise of men. Look at the second glory here in verse 44. He says, you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. I think the second glory here refers to Christ, who is the glory of God the Father. They don't see Christ. They're too busy seeking their own glory. Verse 18. Now, by shifting here from the first references to himself to the third person, Yeshua makes a pointed attack at the rabbis who saw their ministry as an opportunity to build their own fame. That's really what they're doing. They're just kind of, you know, boasting of themselves. In contrast, he pursued the glory 
of the Father who sent him. And he says, he is true. He's speaking of himself, because he's the one seeking the Father's glory. You know, the only other time in this gospel where a person is said to be true, it's referring to God. John 3, 33. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. And Yeshua wants us to see that he alone shares equality with God. Again, it's another thing he's saying, I'm equal with God, I'm true, he's true, we're, we're one and the same. Now the person who advances the ideas of another ends up glorifying the other person rather than himself. And Yeshua claimed to do the latter and to desire the glory of the one who sent him. But his opponents, they're seeking their own glory. Now watch what he says in 19. Remember, he, he's saying, He's talking to Jewish leaders. He's talking to a crowd, but the Jewish leaders, he's pointedly hitting them. He says, didn't Moses give you the law? And yet, none of you carries out the law. Oh, my word. What a slap in the face to these Jewish leaders. That's what they were all about. Now, the the grammatical construction here expects a yes answer. Didn't Moses give you the law? Yes, he did. He gave you the law. And guess what the law of Moses says? Exodus 20.13, you shall not murder. But guess what? They want to murder him. An innocent man. And it's nothing less than attempted murder. Because he is breaking up their little club there. So he's, he's addressing the leader. says, uh, Moses gave you the law, you don't keep it. Why do you seek to kill me? If you're keeping the law, you wouldn't be seeking to kill me. When did the Jewish authorities discuss, when did this all this begin when they started discussing the killing Yeshua? It began in John chapter 5. It was at the feast. It was probably a feast of tabernacles. It was about a year previously. And he healed a man on the Sabbath. And then he said, God was his father, making himself equal with God. And this made them want to kill him. And then he just inflamed it by going on and saying, I did say that. I am 100% equal with God the Father. Everything the Father is, you give glory to me, you give glory to the Father. You give glory to the Father, you give glory to me. And he just lays it out that we're one. I'm equal in every way. So that now they're really mad, and they just want to kill him. Now watch this, the next verse. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? You have a demon. Who said this? Well, it says the crowd. Who's the crowd? This is, see, this is not the Jewish leaders here. The crowd is responding because many of the crowd would be pilgrims. They have come from Jerusalem from a distant place, and they're not aware of the plot to kill them. So they're confused. They're like, see, he's addressing the leaders in the crowd, but, but he's talking to the whole crowd, so they're like, they're looking at each other. Who tried to kill him? This guy must be nuts. He must have a demon. So they thought he was crazy. You know, in Yeshua's day, if it was common thought, mental illness was in this case, paranoia, would be demon-induced. You got a demon. These people are not saying he got his power from Satan. They're just saying, when they say he has a demon, you know what they're saying? You're crazy. Don't we do that today? I use that expression. Kind of a, you know, someone's really nuts. I say, are you possessed? You know, because, I mean, the stuff they're saying is just kind of crazy. You know, that's, that's what's happening here. You got a demon. In other words, you're nuts. Who's trying to kill you? No one's trying to kill you. They don't know what's going on. That's why the crowd is saying that. Yeshua answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. Again, the word marvel, thumazo, same word. It was characteristically used when the object of perception was extremely unusual. What are they marveling at here? What did he do that caused them to marvel? Well, he's been accused of breaking the law of Moses by working on the Sabbath. Because he healed a lame man on the Sabbath. A man been paralyzed for 38 years. Listen, they weren't marveling at the healing. The healing didn't even show up on their radar. They're marveling. You told this man to pick up his bed and walk. It's the Sabbath. They're like, how can you do that? Well, did you see what I just did to this man? He's healed. Look at John 5, 16 and 17. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Yeshua because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working till now, and I myself am working. Now, we read that and we don't get it. What's he saying here? Well, he's defending his actions by pointing out the fact that, wait a minute, God works on the Sabbath. 
Okay? You don't have a problem with that. The rabbis regarded God as working on the Sabbath because guess what? He maintained the universe. People were born on the Sabbath. People died on the Sabbath. Things happened on the Sabbath. They figured God's still running the universe. He didn't take a break on the Sabbath. Otherwise, we'd all go out of existence. And they didn't accuse Yahweh of breaking the Sabbath. So Yeshua says, my father's working till now, and so am I. And so they're like, what? You're making yourself equal with God. And he said, yep, I am. You're right. He is doing the same thing, God. This is a claim to deity, and it gets them really excited. In verse 22, he says, For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. Now, circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 17. Later was continued in the Mosaic covenant, Leviticus 2. Circumcision was believed to be a healing. You've got you to get this aspect of it. It was a healing. You're healing this newborn by bringing him out of the world into the covenant. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. So now we're taking this young man and we're bringing him into the covenant. He is, it is healing him. Now, according to tradition, the command to circumcise newborn babes on the eighth day overrides the Sabbath requirement. Now, how does that work out? Well, see, what happened here is Yeshua is using a typical rabbinic argument. And you've got to understand something of the culture to really get what's going on here. In Yeshua's day, there were seven schools of the Pharisees. Seven different schools. They all taught something different. <laughs> but listen, here's what's important. They all took the Bible literally. But they, ra- they ranged from the most progressive school, which was the school of Hillel. You've heard of Hill- Rabbi Hillel. The most progressive to the most conservative, very traditional school of Shammai. There's five other schools that views fell in between these two. Well, these rabbinic schools were always arguing about how do you interpret Torah? In other words, they called it the yoke. How do you determine what is the proper yoke? And by that, they meant the interpretation of Torah. The way you interpret it is the yoke you take upon yourself. Now, I mentioned rabbis with smika. The rabbis with smika had their own way, and they were allowed to come up with new teachings. All right? That method is called their yoke. So the yoke of the Torah is the way you take on the burden of keeping the Torah on your shoulder. You do it according to their method. Every rabbi had a different yoke. Torah teachers would teach accepted interpretations or yoke of their community. They weren't allowed to do new teachings, but the rabbis with Shemekah wouldn't. If you want more on this whole idea with rabbis with Shemekah, see uh, the message Yeshua the rabbi on, that we did on Mark a long, long time ago. Now, <clears throat> if you wanted to know what a rabbi's with Shemekah's yoke was, you would go to him and you say, what's the greatest commandment? And the greatest commandment will tell you what his yoke is. Does that sound familiar at all? What was Yeshua's yoke? Well, they went to him and they said, Teacher, we've got to figure out what your yoke is here. What's the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost command. That's the, that's the top of it, okay? That's the greatest commandment. What? we got greater and lesser commandments? You understand that? Some people say, Well, they're all equal. Really? Some have the death penalty, okay? That makes it a little bit more of a priority, I would think, all right? The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law. He's summing, all the law sums up here. Love God, love your neighbor. Now, the Jews said that the commandments contradict one another by God's design. So you had to know which was the greater command, so you keep the greater and, you know, put the lesser one down a little bit. For example, Exodus 31, 14. Therefore you are observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. That's kind of serious, right? For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. That's clear, I think, okay? Keep the Sabbath or die. You're not to work on the Sabbath. But listen. The Torah also taught in Leviticus 12, 1-3, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, 
Then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. All right, so you got to keep the Sabbath, you got to circumcise male on the eighth day. That's clear enough also. What do you do if the eighth day falls on the Sabbath? How do you keep one commandment without breaking the other? And this is why they're always asking, which is the greatest commandment? You want to keep the greatest. With 613 individual statutes of the Torah from which to choose, the schools of the Pharisees agreed on the greatest command. All the schools agreed the greatest command is love God. When asked, what is the greatest commandment? Shammai's school would answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your might. Hillel's school would answer the same. And that's what Yahweh's answer. Okay, that's what Yeshua said. All right? Where did they get this from? Where did they decide what was the greatest commandment? What was the first thing a Jew memorized as a child? Shema. Okay? Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel, Yahweh Akenu, Yahweh Achad. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is the Shema. That's what hear means. Shema. Shema Israel. Listen, Israel, he's saying. Listen, Israel. Yahweh is our God. Other nations, they have their gods. We have Yahweh. Yahweh is one. And you've got to love Him with everything you got. Again, this would be the first portion of Scripture that any Jewish boy would memorize. This is the first thing they taught him. This would be the first thing off their lips in the morning. The Shema. They were taught this. So all the rabbinic schools of Yeshua's day agreed, the greatest commandment, love God. Now when asked, what's the second commandment? Shammai's school would answer, keep the Sabbath. They put the Sabbath law above everything else because the Sabbath, they said, was about God. When asked, what's the second commandment? Hillel's school would answer, love your neighbor. Yeshua's answer was also, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor came seventh in Shammai's school. He had a lot of other things you had to do before you had to love your neighbor. So the debate debate in Yeshua's day was how do you interpret the Torah by deciding the greater and lesser commandments? And I think we see this idea of greater and lesser commandments in Yeshua's words in Matthew 5. He says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever keeps and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the, the Jews of Yeshua's day, they allowed for a male child to be circumcised on the Sabbath. They all allowed that. Why they did it on the Sabbath? Because it had to be done on the eighth day. And, you know, occasionally that's going to fall on the Sabbath. And so when the eighth day happened on the Sabbath, they did it on the eighth day. So in a sense, they violated the law about work on the Sabbath. Because they had a prescription that they had to follow the law. And you see that, you know, that's why they're arguing about this. Well, it's the eighth day. We're not allowed to work on the eighth day, but that is work, you know. And so they argued. So they said, well, no, this is, this one ranks higher. So if necessary, the Sabbath could be set aside for something more important. For example, the Bible says if you see your neighbor's ox in a ditch, what are you supposed to do? Help him. What if it's a Sabbath? Well, see, that's why the schools and Yeshua said you love your neighbor so if you're loving your neighbor, you're going to help them, even though it's a Sabbath. It's going to be work to get that animal out, but you love them. So you can, this is a higher commandment. So the Sabbath could be set aside if something, you know, this is, this is the thinking. This is what you got to get here. There, there, are, there are certain commands that set aside the Sabbath. Now look at uh, verse 23. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, they're they're doing the circumcision, they're doing it on the Sabbath because it's in the law and they think it's a greater commandment. Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? If here is a first-class conditional sentence, it assumes true. If a man receives circumcision, and he does, you could translate that if since. Yeshua's argument is an example of the Jewish method of arguing from uh, the lesser to the greater, the a fortiori, a fortiori argument. 
the essence of Yeshua's argument was that they're willing to put aside the sabbatical rules so that the baby could be circumcised, because that's what they taught was more important. But they're not willing to put aside their sabbatical rules that a man might be made whole on the Sabbath. You notice, catch what he says there, that an entire man may be well. Paul Harris writes this that I think helps explain. The rabbis counted 248 parts to a man's body. The rabbis had minutiae for everything, okay? And the Talmud, Yama 85b, states, if circumcision which attaches to one only of the 248 members of the human body suspends the Sabbath, and they all agreed on that, right? it did suspend the Sabbath, how much more shall the saving of a whole body suspend the Sabbath? That's Yeshua's argument. I made a whole, I made the entire man well. If, I can, if you can make a part of him well, why can't I make the whole man well on the Sabbath? So absolutely binding did rabbinic Judaism regard the command of Leviticus 12.3 uh, to circumcise on the eighth day that Mishnah Shabbat 18.3 holds that the command to circumcise overrides the command to observe the Sabbath. So Yeshua is basically saying, listen guys, I am not breaking the law. I'm not doing anything that you don't do on a regular basis. In other words, you do this all the time. You heal part of a man on the Sabbath. I just healed the entire man. So why is it a problem? And he concludes his defense by saying to them, don't judge according to appearance. Judge with a righteous judgment. He warns his hearers against judging according to appearance. In other words, judging superficially. Their superficial judgment was about, you know, what was a legitimate activity on the Sabbath when they already did this. So they're being hypocrites. They were judging him because he healed a man and told him to take his mat and walk. It was a violation of their, you know, this carrying your mat was a violation of their legal additions to the Sabbath command. But at the same time, they're rejecting the true and right. They're rejecting the man who healed the man because the man who healed him told him to take his bed and walk. That's so superficial. Well, you made him well. I guess you can tell him to do whatever he wants. I mean, if you've been paralyzed for 38 years and he says, get up and walk, and he says, carry your bed. Yes, sir. I'll carry my bed. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I mean, come on, people. By judging by appearance, that's what they were doing. And listen, think about this. If you're judging by appearance, what do you think of Yeshua? Looks like a Jew. Sounds like a Galilean. Probably got a Galilean accent. It looks every bit of man. I mean, they knew his parents. They knew everything. So they're judging superficially. We know you're just a man. We know who you are. So instead of believing his words that he said were spirit and life, they judged him simply as a man. So superficial judgment. No, you can't be. You know, they just, they couldn't see it. They were blind. That's why he keeps stressing you got to be drawn by the Father. They wouldn't get it. You know, I think this is a great verse for all of us to take heed to. Don't judge according to appearance. Don't we do that? we got certain things we don't like, certain things we do like. If we don't like them, uh, you look at someone, you're like, what's wrong with them? You know? And we don't, sometimes don't give people a chance, you know? When we judge... Our judgment is to not be superficial. In other words, not based on external. What's our judgment based on? The Scriptures. What does the Bible say? Let's, let's make our, you know, some people say, oh, you can't judge. Judge not, lest you be judged. That's one of the most famous verses, you know, Matthew 7, 1, in the Word of God. But that does not forbid us from judging. It forbids wrong judgment, superficial judgment. Later on in that text, you are to judge. Judge people by the words they say. We, we need to take the Scriptures and make judgments based on that. We're doing things backwards. We judge superficially. We don't judge by the Scriptures. We need to use the Scriptures. Well, the Scriptures say this is wrong, so therefore it's wrong. I don't care what our society says. You know, when God wrote the Word, He said, now this is good for this century. You guys, you guys are going to have to add your own things when you get there later, because I'm sure society will change. He didn't say any of that stuff, Okay? No, the Word of God is the Word of God. Society changes, and so they want us to accept all kinds of different things. Listen, people, the Word stands. What was wrong then is still wrong now, okay? 
It's nothing, it hasn't changed. Our society changes. But we need to stand on the scriptures. And so the more you do that, guess what? You're going to be labeled as, I guess, racist now. Anything you disagree with the left on, you're racist. I don't care what it is. Anything, you know? Anything. That's that famous term now, you know? So, you know, you're racist for whatever. And it's just, it's sad because we have principles and we got to stand on them. But again, let, we need to stand on them lovingly, okay? It's, we need to be, it's not us that offends people. It needs to be the truth of Scripture. That will offend people enough. Just stand on it. This society we're living in needs a light. They need to call back to the truth of the Word of God. And the only people that have that light are God's people. So, you know, if we don't, if we cower and hide from society, they'll never see the light. We need to judge, not according to appearance. And today, that's difficult, okay? <laughs> it's very difficult. Let's judge. Let's let our judgment be righteous based on the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity, Lord, to spend time in your Word. I thank you, Lord, for just how incredible your Word is, Lord. And just, I thank you for our Lord Yeshua and his dealing with these religious leaders and that we can sit in on and watch this happening, Lord, so many thousands of years later. Thank you, Father. Lord, I pray you'd give every one of us the heart of a Berean that we would not accept what I say, not reject what I say, but be a Berean and study it out for themselves. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Amen.